You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV, AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. Let me stop you right there. This will always be a pro Cam Newton show. Opinionated. Hey, Tatum is phenomenal, but the end of game execution in the NBA is just laughable. To the point. I'm already tired of this storyline. This guy's a future Patriot. This quarterback's a future Patriot. And that quarterback's a future Patriot. Are we really going to link everybody to the Pats all offseason? Because I, I have zero interest in that. Thank you. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? We are back on a Monday, my favorite week of the year, Super Bowl week. Super Bowl Monday leading up to the big game. It is the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Wow, am I pumped for everything we have coming this week. The staff has worked really, really hard putting together what we are calling Radio Row at Home. We're bringing you the feel of Tampa without having to be in Tampa. And Radio Row largely canceled this year. There's a handful of local stations that are that are actually broadcasting from a, you know, um, a central location. But other than that, every station in the country shut out of Radio Row. Well, we are bringing what usually is Radio Row to you here. The biggest names, the best guests, local names, national names. We have got it all. We have worked really hard on this guest list all week. I hope that you guys like it. You guys can text in, as always, 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. There's logistically two things that you need to know. That's it. Two things you need to know all week. One, we're tabling some of our usual segments because we're just having more guests on the show. This whole show is not going to be guests, but we are going to have more guests than usual, so we won't be doing all of our usual segments. We'll pick them up next week. And two, you'll want to subscribe to the full show podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, because some of our interviews will air exclusively on that podcast. We will have so many interviews that we will not be able to play all of them on the show. But the podcast channel will house them all. We started off today in a big way. 545, Galen Carr, a Vermonter, lived in Burlington for a long time, used to work with the Lake Monsters. He is the vice president of player personnel for the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. He's with us in about 10 minutes. Keith Coin, Norwich hockey alum, Stanley Cup champion. He's going to be with us at 615. And Russ Landy, the head of U.S. scouting for the Montreal Alouettes is going to be with us. CFL guy now, but he's worked in the NFL. He knows everything about scouting and the draft. We're pumped for him at about 640. So this week is going to get crazy. This day is crazy with the guest list. It is the busiest week of the year for me. Whether I'm on site or not, I absolutely am pumped. Guys, let's get right to it. Five, four, three, two. One. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. 
Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Middlesex, St. Albans, Swanton, Enosburg, and Derby, and online at sticksandstuff.com. Joe in Burlington says, I'm pumped to hear Keith the Coin. I'm pumped to hear Keith the Coin, too. I have never interviewed Keith the Coin, never even spoken to him. So, 615, the leading scorer in Norwich hockey history and a Stanley Cup champion will be with us. But uh, first, Matthew Stafford and Jared Goff get swapped for each other with more draft picks going to Detroit. And the report comes out from Tommy Kern of NBC Sports Boston that Matthew Stafford told the Lions they could trade him anywhere but the New England Patriots. Okay, Stafford says anywhere but the Patriots. I truly think if that is true, Matthew Stafford is going about this the wrong way or that he went about this the wrong way. First, this is not to say that New England was the best place on the board. I'm not here to stunt for that way of thinking. Okay, I agree the Rams where Stafford ended up is a better fit than New England. They have an offensive-minded head coach. They already have weapons in place. They play in great weather. There's a lot of good things to like about the Rams. Now, the division they play in is the toughest division in football, so I could argue that's a major negative. But really, outside of that, there's a lot of good things about the Rams and a lot of things that make the Rams better than the New England Patriots. But to tell the Lions, I'll go anywhere but New England, is just completely absurd on Stafford's part. First off, Stafford doesn't have a no-trade clause. So he was going to go wherever the damn well I told him he was going. I really don't care what he thinks if I'm the Lions about where he wanted to go. Okay, If he didn't want to play in New England, New England is the one that runs the risk. The Lions' obligation is to get the best deal that they can, not to appease him. Now, apparently they wanted to appease him because they want to accommodate him for all his years of being a good soldier, and that's all fine. But if New England had blown their doors off in a deal, you better believe that he was going to New England, okay? So let's not get this twisted. Stafford can have all the preferences that he wants here, but the Lions should have sent him where the best deal was. It just so happens the Rams made the best deal. The Rams sent a starting quarterback who has been to a Super Bowl, and for all the Jared Goff hate there is out there, Jared Goff has been to and started a Super Bowl. So let's not forget that. The Lions got a starting quarterback that's been in the Super Bowl and got two first-round picks. So that was a great deal by the Lions. As far as I'm concerned, the Lions won the deal. I don't usually like to assign winners and losers right away, but my eye test tells me the Lions got a starting quarterback and two future first-round picks, and that's better than two years of a 33-year-old quarterback. That's what my gut tells who's never won a playoff game. That's what my gut tells me. Okay, And secondly to Stafford, Let's not act like New England is a, is the awful situation that he apparently thinks it is. I mean, give me a break. Okay, You have a championship head coach, a long-tenured offensive coordinator, and even after adding Stafford, you'd have $40 million in cap space to play with. There is room for growth in New England and quick growth in New England. Okay, The situation for the Patriots is dire. If they have a young quarterback who, and they're in rebuild mode and they slow play the spending, okay? The, the Patriots, if they play with a rookie quarterback, even like I've advocated them for, if they truly don't build up around them this year, they could go 4-12. and 12. That would be a dire situation. If they play next year with a rookie quarterback, 
and the same weapons they had this year, then they were going to be bad. But if they acquired Stafford and spent that money, then the New England Patriots situation could be very good and could be very good very quickly. And Stafford, if he's as good as everybody says that he is, if he's as good as everybody says he is, and they spent that money, and they have Belichick, and they have McDaniels, why wouldn't I think the Patriots situation is great? This is, again, not to argue that New England is better than the Rams situation-wise. The Rams are better. But let's not act like New England's a dumpster fire. They're a dumpster fire if they draft Mac Jones at 15 and don't spend money. That's when they become a that's when they become a huge dumpster fire. This team went seven and nine last year with the worst quarterback play in the league. If they get if they got Stafford and upgraded the money and upgraded the positions, they go ten and six and they're right in the thick of the playoff thing. It's right in the thick of the playoff race. It doesn't mean that they were going to win the Super Bowl with Stafford, but if Stafford goes there and the Pats upgrade, they're better than the Detroit situation he's coming from by a mile. It's the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. But, look, let's all be serious here. If that's what it was going to take cost-wise to get Matthew Stafford, I'm thrilled the Patriots didn't get involved. That is an absurd price to pay. A starting quarterback and two first-round picks for a 33-year-old who's never won a playoff game. That is absurd. Again, the Jared Goff angle here is fascinating. I get it. The first first-round pick, that's for Stafford. The second first-round pick, that's the thank you for taking Goff's contract. But I don't think Goff is that bad. I don't. Jared Goff has been to a Super Bowl, started a Super Bowl, has beaten Drew Brees and Russell Wilson in the playoffs in their buildings. Let's not act like Jared Goff is... Nathan Peterman out here. Let's let's not go down that road. I can understand the Rams thinking that Stafford is better. That's fine. But let's not act like the the, the, the Lions were just giving garbage in return here. They got two first-round picks, and they got a starting quarterback in the NFL who's been in the Super Bowl who's 25 years old. That's a great return if I'm Detroit. It's, it's, it's possible, of course, that both teams can win in this scenario. The Rams can win short-term. The Lions can win short- and long-term, potentially. They both can win. But my gut tells me the Lions, I think they did better than the Rams right now. The question remains about Goff. Can he win without McVay, and can he win without that supporting cast? But guess what? Goff is 15 games over 500 in his career as a starter. And if he does need all that other stuff around him to win... So do other quarterbacks, a lot of them. There is no award for just having a great quarterback and having no help. When Aaron Rodgers is great on his own and has no help, we crush the Packers' front office for not giving him enough help. Quarterbacks need help. Tom Brady left New England in part because he was going to go get more help in Tampa. Deshaun Watson wants out of Houston because he's not getting help from the organization in a couple of different sectors. But the team also isn't as good. So if Goff needs help, that shouldn't be used against him because Stafford is going to a place where there's more help. Better skill players, better defense, better head coach. So Stafford's going to be the benefit of good help. Goff needs good help also, potentially. 
you know, we're going to find out if he's able to win in any situation. But if he's not, he's no different than 95% of other quarterbacks in the NFL. I mean, as far as the, the Pats go again to this, I would have been cool giving up the number 15 pick for Stafford. But when you start talking two first-round picks and a starting player, I'm glad the Patriots never got close to this. And I don't know what this means for Deshaun Watson, but I don't even think that I'm in the same stratosphere as what it's going to take now to get Deshaun Watson. So um, it's a big trade in the NFL. It's great offseason fodder. I'm, I'm happy it got done before the weekend, before we started talking all week about Stafford and New England still. But it gets done, and here we go. We're off and moving. The quarterback carousel is going. We'll see where the Patriots land on that carousel because they've got something to do. I don't know what it is, but they've got something to do. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Okay, Radio Row at home day one. He's a Vermonter. He used to work for the Red Sox. He just won a championship with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Galen Carr, vice president, player personnel for the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. He's with us next on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Final days, final discounts. Goodfellows Fine Jewelers in Barry. Huge going out of business sale. Nothing will be held back. Everything must be sold before we close forever on February 13th at 4 p.m. Half price diamond stud earrings and huge selections of diamond engagement rings. Do not miss this final opportunity at Goodfellows. Hurry in today. February 13th is our last and final day. Only at Goodfellows Fine Jewelers. Huge going out of business sale. 105 North Main Street, downtown Barry. Think you know sports better than Brady does? Text in with your thoughts at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. I am pumped. You know, for the last five years, I've been down at Super Bowl Media Week on Radio Row. That's not really happening, but we are bringing Radio Row to you all week long by bringing some of the biggest names in football, but also across all sports and sectors and entertainment as well. So joining us now, a Burlingtonian, now turned Hollywood. We'll talk about that, but he's the vice president of player personnel for the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. Used to work with the Red Sox. It's our guy, Galen Carr. Galen, man, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm doing very well, Brady. Thanks for having me. Pleasure well, to be here. I appreciate I appreciate you joining us. So you're a Burlington guy. You've been in Vermont for a long time. The Dodgers finally win the World Series, and you move to L.A. and go Hollywood. What is that all about? <laughs> well, you know, the job that, uh, that I do for the Dodgers is one that entails a ton of travel, uh, typically on the road, close to 200 nights a year, scouting uh, our minor league affiliates, spending time out in the office in Los Angeles, uh, scouting overseas, whether it's Latin America or – Asia, and so part of the uh, part of the the logic behind the move was to uh, stay connected with our office a little bit more, uh, and essentially be home more, travel less, uh, mm. but still be part of the inner workings uh, of baseball operations in LA. Uh, in addition to continuing to scout, it'll give me an opportunity to continue to learn along with uh, my colleagues and teammates in the front office. So pretty excited about it. 
What was the previous 60 game season like for you? Obviously less travel for you, you know, in terms of scouting, no minor league baseball, no overseas trips and all that. But were you able to be in the ballpark on World Series clinching day or, or what was that like? Yeah, uh, it, the whole season was was kind of a whirlwind, um, you know, spend spending the entirety of 60 games more or less watching it from your couch. Hmm. Uh, we did move out to L.A. in mid-August, so I had the opportunity to see some of our games live from Dodger Stadium, um, you know, from a distance. But uh, but I was also fortunate enough to, um, you know, to not only be at the playoffs at Dodger Stadium in, in, for the first round, but to be able to go to Texas for hmm. the clinching game, uh, games three through six, I was present in Dallas. Wow. So that was obviously a really special experience. It was a little odd after, you know, such a bizarre season to be in a stadium with people, yeah. you know, by people on the concourse, uh, you know, and everyone was kind of like spaced out in the stands. Uh, people were groups of people were supposed to be six feet apart. So, um, I, I had the pleasure of uh, accompanying a few colleagues that had flown in for the occasion as well. And it was a great experience. It was, uh, it was different from, um, from past experiences uh, being at the World Series, but uh, it was just as gratifying. And, and uh, we were really proud of the, this, this club this year. Vice President of Player Personnel, it's a really fancy title. What exactly does it mean? Because it feels like you're like one step away from general managership. Am I, is, is that the track? Uh, so I'll answer your first question. Um, it, uh, it, it means that I'm, I'm part of a, a decision-making crew with the Dodgers that has input on player personnel moves at the big league level, at the minor league level, uh, as we acquire players on the professional side internationally, I get to have input in all those areas, which is, which is such a privilege. Um, I, I still do a lot of scouting. I'll try to go evaluate our minor league players and, uh, and have a chance to, to put input in on our major league roster as well. Um, primary responsibility includes managing our professional scouting department. So uh, we have a scouting department that's entirely dedicated to scouting other minor league and major league players, you know, the assets of other major league teams for purposes of potential acquisition down the road, whether it be waiver claim, rule five draft, trade, minor league free agency, major league free agency, our scouts have input and we'll project those players, uh, you know, two, three, four years ahead uh, down the road. I'll also have input on our process in the Pacific Rim, acquiring players that have a professional track record that are coming out of Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, which is a really interesting process as well. Um, so that's the, the kind of the role in a nutshell. Um, with regard to being becoming a general manager someday, I mean, I think, you know, you, if you pulled, you know, 100 baseball operations employees across baseball, you know, the vast majority would probably say yes, like they're they're gunning to run a team of, of by themselves or, or on their own. Um, that's never really been a goal of mine. I, I, I have so much to continue to learn from the, the amazing teammates that I have with the Dodgers number one. And, uh, and I really, I just want to win. And so being fortunate enough to be part of a culture and organization that is collaborative and, and learns from each other and, um, is successful, you know, for me, that's the primary motivator to continue to win as a group and as a team. Um, obviously it's a great challenge to take over an organization on your own, uh, and lead, 
uh, you know, lead from the, 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 the top down and bottom up if, as you're bringing an organization back to life. Um, but that has never really been a primary motivator for me. Galen Carr, he's a Vermonter. Now he's out in L.A. He's with the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers, vice president of uh, player personnel. You know, before I get too deep again into the Dodgers, let me go back to the Red Sox because you were there for 15 years working and scouting and various other functions. Um, as we talk now, a couple hours ago, Dustin Pedroia announced his retirement. Just talk to me a little bit about your uh, Pedroia experience or Pedroia memories or what he meant to the organization when you were in Boston. I was just talking with a friend about about Dustin uh, right before this call, and and you know, from a leadership standpoint, the way he impacted the Red Sox was really remarkable. I mean, this this guy, from a physical stature standpoint, never really impressed anyone in particular, but he was such a dynamic personality in the clubhouse, on the field, a guy who had no shortage of self confidence. Um, he truly, truly embodied the nature of believing in your own ability. Mm. And he was a remarkable player on both sides of the ball. And and I think, you know, you can't overstate the impact that his belief in himself and belief in his team uh, had on the success of the Red Sox while he was there. You know, one of the remarkable things about his ability too, you know, we all know he was a great hitter. Um, I remember my first year scouting in 2006 when he got up to the big leagues and he had kind of a rough intro uh, at the big league level and wasn't really performing. And, you know, he had an approach at the plate, which didn't really from a scouting standpoint, at least didn't look super sustainable. You know, the big swing, big leg lift, hard stride forward, big swing for a little guy. Yeah. And so I remember being out and hearing other professional scouts with other teams just crushing him. Like this guy's never going to hit you guys are, you know, you took him way too high in the draft. Like, I don't know what you're thinking. And, and it was, it was interesting to hear that because it was the early days of, of recognizing the value of minor league performance. And, mm. you know, Pedroia, if you looked back at that time, my response was, Hey, I know this guy is struggling, but 10 times out of 10, I will take a dude who has more extra base hits than strikeouts. Yeah. The course of his minor league career. And here we are talking about Dustin at the end of his career as, a, as you know, rightfully a borderline Hall of Famer. I mean, who knows where, uh, you know, where he'd be if he had gotten to play the last three years. I know, an unbelievable career, and you're right, un- unbelievable importance to the Red Sox and what they've done. You know, we've been talking today a lot about here on this kind of Super Bowl week and, and how it's building up now. We talked a lot about the, the Los Angeles Rams trade, acquiring Matthew Stafford from the Lions over the weekend. You guys made a very big trade of your own last year getting Mookie Betts. Without going into details about that, talk to me about what's the energy like in an organization when you acquire a big-level talent like you guys did with Mookie and David Price and like the Rams just did across the street? I mean, it is to say it's a shot in the arm is understating it. Uh, but I think it, it, it went more – it went beyond – acquiring Mookie was beyond just acquiring a great player – I think everyone in the organization knew ahead of time what kind of human being he was, what kind of leader he was, what kind of cultural impact he would have on our club. And that all, that all bared out the way we thought it would, um, you know, in terms of his impact on our clubhouse and on our team on, on the field. So to say we were excited is definitely underselling. I mean, we were, we were so pumped. We were so pumped to be able to bring, Mookie into this organization and we knew that 
that you know the value that we surrendered from the standpoint of the trade itself um, would be a lot easier to swallow if we could convince Mookie to stick around for a yeah. while after that. And uh, we're fortunate enough that um, you know we've got such a great leader in Andrew Friedman who was able to convince him to uh, to stay here. Galen Carr with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM and WDEV Radio.com. He's vice president of player personnel for the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, we're actually having, ironically enough, a football scout on in an hour or so. So I, I kind of want your story. Like, baseball scout is a tough life, but there's great stories behind it. So there's got to be one. Give me the story, the guy you've tracked all around the world and watched a hundred times, and maybe you got him, and maybe he's the one that got away. But Who's that guy for you when you tell the story? Well, for me, it's the one that got away. And, you know, the, the way that we operate in general now as, as an organization is, is uh, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to take credit or, um, you know, feel like you were at fault personally for missing out on one player or land or landing one player in particular, but the, the most enjoyable chase that we had for sure with, with, the most disappointing outcome was uh, for me, certainly Shohei Otani. Yeah. He was a yeah. two-way player with, with the angels uh, who came out of Japan at a time where, um, you know, this guy was an impact big leaguer, not only on the mound, but at the plate. Uh, and, you know, to top it off, you know, he ran faster than 99% of the other big leaguers getting out of the box down the line, just a, just a superb um, athlete overall. Uh, to top it off, he was essentially coming out of Japan at a time where he wasn't going to require much of a financial commitment. And that was his choice. He had made a fair amount of money in Japan and he was uh, driven to come to the big leagues and prove himself in the major leagues. And um, so being the Dodgers, we thought we had a real shot at acquiring him out of Japan and convincing him to sign with us. I think at the end of the day, for a player that wanted to continue to pitch and hit, the American League made a lot more sense for him with the designated hitter at that time. But for me, um, never quite having experienced uh, the opportunity to scout a player like Otani, that was that was the one that really sticks in my mind. With it being Super Bowl week, Tom Brady is a guy that we certainly look at and say that what he's doing is amazing. And it's amazing on a lot of different levels. Who is the player you come across in baseball, your organization or others, that has wowed you? Um, well, certainly, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to run across, uh, Mookie when he was young within the Red Sox organization. My last year with Boston was 2014. And so at the time I had been scouting the minor league system with the Red Sox as well. So getting a chance to see Mookie play, uh, throughout the minor leagues, uh, and especially, you know, the memories, the most poignant memories are from watching him in Portland, Maine with the Sea Dogs. Just the energy he brought to the field, the confidence with which he he carried within himself (laughs) in the plate, uh, in the field and at the plate was, you know, sometimes it just stands out from the rest of the crowd. Sometimes it's just like, you don't, you don't have to be any kind of whiz to, to know that that's the best player on the field. You don't have to have a ton of baseball experience to know like that guy is going to be a special big leaguer. And whether it's, you know, the, uh, the, the level of, um, you know, trust his teammates showed to showed in him, whether it was like his ability to rise to the moment and perform the athleticism was always evident. Like it was, uh, that, that to me was one of the most special players that I've been able to watch 
Gail, I'll get you out of here on this. You had a chance when you were growing up to intern with the Vermont Lake Monsters. The Lake Monsters have uh, just recently lost their major league affiliation, but they are going to exist in the professional realm. Um, what do you think will be in store for the Lake Monsters 2.0 as they transition out of affiliated ball? Do you think that matters to the community in Vermont that they're not major league affiliated? <laughs> That's a great question, Brady. I, I would hope that it doesn't just because the experience of going to watch a baseball game at Centennial is, is so special in and of itself that, um, and you're so far away removed from the big leagues anyway, when you're talking mm -hmm. about short season, New York Penn league baseball, that I would hope that the community is still as supportive as of the Lake monsters as they've been in the past. Um, I don't think it'll, I don't think it should in the Burlington community make a huge difference. And I, I certainly hope it doesn't. So um, it's well, a special experience and I was lucky to be a part of it for sure. Well, we're looking forward to, uh, to the announcement as to what's coming next. Galen Carr, we're also looking forward to pitchers and catchers, you know, scheduled to fingers crossed report here in the next two weeks. So Galen Carr with the champion Los Angeles Dodgers. And uh, even though he's out there now, we're still claiming him as a Vermonter. So Galen, man, we appreciate it. Best of luck to the Dodgers this season and congrats on all the, on all the uh, success. Thank you so much, Brady. Pleasure joining you guys. Well, appreciate you being with us as well. Galen Carr, champion with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So there you go. That's the start of Radio Row at Home. You miss any of the interview, it'll be available after the fact on our full show uh, podcast as well as just on the uh, just the interview itself on the podcast channel as well. Phil and Middlesex gets into the text line. You can too, 585-3026. Brady, don't forget that the Lions also got a third-round pick in this year's draft from the Rams. That's right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm so fixated on the first-round picks in golf that, yeah, I neglected to even mention the third-round pick. Do not think – I mean, th look, the Lions did really, really well in this trade, I thought. The third-round pick is awesome. The two first-round picks in the future are awesome and – I think Goff is a whole lot better than people think he is. So we'll step aside, we'll get a break, and we'll come right back with more on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEV Radio. You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast, brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center, with locations in Middlesex, St. Albans, Swanton, Enosburg, and Derby, and online always at sticksandstuff.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back. Brady Farkas Show right here. WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Reminder to subscribe to the full show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber online on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. Radio Row at home as we count down towards the big game. Thanks to Galen Carr for being with us uh, in the last segment. We'll be joined by Keith Coin, former Norwich University hockey player and NHL alum, in about 10 minutes. So 802-585-3026. The big trade over the weekend. Matthew Stafford goes from Detroit to the Rams. Jared Goff goes from the Rams to Detroit. The uh, Lions also get two future first-round picks and a third-round pick this year. In my mind, on you know, my early glance says the Lions made better in this deal than the Rams did. Now, obviously, they both can win, as I said about 20 minutes ago, but my gut tells me right now the, the Lions got more than the Rams did. So, uh, But Matthew Stafford said he did not want to play for New England. He did. You could trade him anywhere but the Patriots, and that would include the awful situation with the Houston Texans, apparently. So here's the question, 585-3026. 
does Stafford not wanting to play in New England say more about Matt Stafford or Bill Belichick? Does Matt Stafford not wanting to play in New England say more about Matt Stafford or about Bill Belichick? I think it says more about Belichick, but not in the way that you think. I don't think it has anything to do with Belichick's personality or the Patriot way or things being too hard or Belichick being too rigid. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I truly think Stafford could play for Belichick and be fine with it. I think it really has to do with the fact that Belichick isn't an offensive-minded coach. I think Stafford feels he's going to be personally elevated by Rams head coach Sean McVay. And since the quarterback is the most important person on the field, I think Stafford thinks if he gets personally elevated, the Rams team or the team he's on has a greater chance for success. Stafford sees instability in New England, right? He sees a coach that he's not sure how long he's going to be there for. He sees an offensive coordinator in Josh McDaniels who's good but wants to be a head coach and might not be there. And quarterbacks coach Jed Fish is gone too. So there's things there in New England that I could see giving Stafford pause. Now, I still think New England is a far better situation than he apparently thinks that it is. But I can see why the situation with McVay is more appealing to Matt Stafford. And by the way, I love McVay. McVay is is probably my favorite coach in the NFL. I love the way that he calls games, and I do believe McVay gets the best out of an offense. His star was apparently falling this year, and I never saw it. Like, early part of this year, first half, people were out on McVay, and I guess people were out on Goff, but I never was out on McVay. I think he can get the best out of offenses. We've seen them win in a variety of ways since he got there, okay? They've won with all the bells and whistles. We've seen the win with Todd Gurley and C.J. Anderson and Cam Akers at running back. We've seen him swing big and have Brandon Cooks and Sammy Watkins and Robert Woods and Cooper Cup. We've seen them win with all of these guys, and we've seen them win without these guys as a lot of them have been hurt at various points. I don't think that Stafford's reluctance has anything to do with Belichick and his personality. I think it has much more to do about his trust in Sean McVay and his trust in what they have built in Los Angeles right now. I think that's got to be the reason for Stafford's like for L.A. and his reluctance for New England. I, I think that, you know, Cam was fine in New England. I think Stafford could be fine in New England. All that stuff personality-wise, I don't. I really don't think that that would bother would bother a guy like Stafford. He's been in the league for over a decade. All he wants to do is win. So if he has to win the New England way or any other way, I think he could completely acquiesce to that. But I think he wants to personally get better and personally be in a great situation for him. And right now, I can see why he thinks that's not New England. But again, for this year, for 2021, with Josh McDaniels there, with Bill Belichick, I'd have to think, New England is better than he thinks it is. I mean, seriously, he was more willing to go to Houston or Philadelphia than he was New England, apparently. I just can't get on board with that. I just don't understand how that is possible. Um, but 
the one thing that surprises me in all of this that people are failing to mention is the Rams are getting picked to be, you know, top five in Super Bowl odds for next year. The thing that we're forgetting about is how is Stafford really rushing to get to the NFC West? I mean, that shocks me. The NFC West is the best division in football. I mean, does Stafford, who's never won a playoff game, does he really want to play the 49ers when healthy? Does he really want to see the Seahawks with Russell Wilson? And does he want to see the Cardinals who are up and coming twice a year? And does he want to see these places when there's fans in the stands? I mean, San Francisco, no easy place to play. Seattle may be the hardest place to play when there's fans in the stands. I mean, the Patriots situation divisionally is better than that. I mean, the Dolphins and Jets are still not as good as those teams. The Bills are very good. But the Dolph- the, the division, there's more wins in the AFC East than there are in the NFC West. The Colts situation in the AFC South, I mean, that's the one that Stafford should have been jumping at. I mean, to go to the AFC South where there's Tennessee and Jacksonville and Houston, and if Houston moves Watson and Jacksonville has a rookie in there, that's another win. That's another division where there's a lot of wins in there. So um, the fact that Stafford wanted to go to the NFC West, he must think awfully highly of McVay, but also of himself with McVay because that that's a division – like you just escaped Aaron Rodgers, who had a vice grip on that on your division for a decade. Now you're going to go to Russell Wilson, Kyle Shanahan, and Kyler Murray. Good luck. I, I I think the Rams are good. I think they're very good, but their schedule will be hard next year. They finish second in the NFC West, so they'll have hard you know a harder schedule. Seattle will have a hard schedule, so they'll they'll all beat up on each other. And then they're going to play hard outside schedules. I I don't think the Rams are taking the massive jump that people are giving them credit for. I, If I were Stafford, I would have wanted to be with the Colts if I was really looking at it like that. So uh, Keith Acoin with us in a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes here. But uh, quick note, Dustin Bedroya does retire. We talked with Galen Carr about it a little while ago. I thought this anecdote the staff was able to pull on Pedroia was pretty cool. Galen Carr, VP, player personnel for the Los Angeles Dodgers, used to work with the Red Sox, so he's been around Pedroia. From a leadership standpoint, the way he impacted the Red Sox was really remarkable. I mean, this this guy, from a physical stature standpoint, never really impressed anyone in particular, but he was such a dynamic personality in the clubhouse, on the field, a guy who had no shortage of self-confidence. Um, he truly, truly embodied the nature of believing in your own ability. You know, I've always believed that. Just having that belief in yourself, if you have that unwavering confidence, you can accomplish a whole lot. And Galen talks also he talks also talked about Pedroia's minor league numbers and how his minor league numbers were so good and maybe didn't look the part, but the productivity was there. I just think if a guy has success places he deserves a chance to move up. And, you know, credit to the Red Sox for giving Pedroia that chance, but credit to Pedroia for never letting, you know, his size or his limitations hold him back. He proved it over and over again throughout his minor league career. He proved it over and over again throughout his major league career. He was rookie of the year. He was MVP. He was multi-time all-star. Um, Pedroia learned how to overcome his own limitations, and it's pretty amazing to see what you can do when you believe in yourself enough to overcome those limitations. So um, it's a frustrating three years for Pedroia where he really didn't play at all since 2000. And I mean, let's see here, 2018, he misses all 2020 because, you know, he didn't play. 2019, he plays like three games. 
2018, he misses most of the season. I, I think we're going back towards 2017 here. He hasn't played hardly at all, and he was hurt a lot of 2017. I mean, let's look at how many games Pedroia has played in the last four years. So 2017, he plays 105 games. 2018, he plays three. 2019, he plays six. 2020, he plays zero. So really, he's missed the entirety of the last three and a half years. And uh, it's not a loss anymore for the Red Sox on the field. It is just sad for Pedroia that it had to end this way because he really could have been on a Hall of Fame track. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer now despite really good numbers. You know, 299 career average, uh, a guy who could hit for some power. Again, rookie of the year, MVP once. I don't think he's a a Hall of Famer, but I do think he's a Red Sox Hall of Famer, and he absolutely deserves his number getting retired at some point. So you talk about overcoming limitations and, and overcoming obstacles. Well, our next guest is somebody who's also overcome obstacles. From Division Three to the Stanley Cup, it's Keith Coin. It's our first time talking. Keith Coin, the all-time leading scorer in Norwich men's hockey history. In that storied program, he's the all-time leading scorer, played in the NHL for the Hurricanes, the Islanders, the Capitals, and the Blues. And again, he has that Stanley Cup ring, which I want to ask him about. So, Keith Coin, thank you for being with us, man. Appreciate the time. How are you on this uh, radio row at home? Good. Thanks for having me on. I haven't done an interview in a while, so I might be a little rusty. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being with us here on Radio Row at Home. Um, you know, since it is the week of the Super Bowl, let me kind of give you a question framed in a Super Bowl context. Tom Brady, what he's doing is pretty amazing at 43 years old. He's kind of a guy that we're all in awe of. In your career on the ice, is there ever anyone that you were in awe of when you stepped on the ice with them or against them? Uh, yeah, I think there's a couple, um, obviously names that everybody would know. Um, no, I was lucky enough to play with some of them. I got to play with, uh, Alex Ovechkin, um, where, you know, anytime you were on the ice with him, some of the stuff that he can do, you just like, wow, you know, um, the way he can shoot the puck, uh, the way he skates, um, the way he competes every night, you can really learn from guys like that. And when he's the best player in the world playing like that, you know, everybody should play like that. Um, and I got to play against Sidney Crosby um in the playoffs uh when i was with the islanders and uh my line was actually matched up against uh, his line and um so i got to play against you know probably the best player in the world in the playoffs and uh i think we lost in game six but um, i got to play against him pretty much six games and um just the compete level of all the top players in the world um you know is, is what really makes them and you can really learn from that and i got to learn from it as well you know, I, what I'm going to ask you next is kind of the Patrick Mahomes question, who is the, you know, Mahomes is the guy we look at as the up-and-comer, the guy who could be the heir apparent to being the GOAT. And I would ask you, who's the guys you played against that were young up-and-comers that impressed you? But Sidney Crosby might just be that guy on both fronts. Right. I mean, he was still young when I was coming up, too, so he was a little bit younger. Um, so it's, it's kind of tough. Um, but I play with so many guys, so um, – but, you know, I played with guys that were that were young in the in the minor league and Hershey. Um, you know, one guy that comes to mind, he's not a big name guy. His name is Jay Beagle. Um, he's a guy that played in Alaska and, you know, he wasn't a high draft pick, but he's a guy that just worked hard and, and kind of bide his time in the minors. And now he's been in the NHL for, um, you know, eight years. And he's a guy that really didn't expect it. And then he won a Stanley Cup with um, – the Washington Capitals a couple of years later after, you know, I left uh, the Capitals organization. So 
um, there's so many guys out there that just kind of fly under the radar and um, guys that, you know, when they get the chance, you have to capitalize on it because you don't know if you're going to get another chance. And, um, you know, those are the guys that you root for. You know, media members always ask this question. It's so cheesy. I can't believe I'm about to ask you. But when was your welcome to the NHL moment? When did you realize, like, damn, I am here? Well, when did the light go on? Um, I'd say, I mean, I'd say my first NHL game. Um, you know, I'm not a guy that ever got nervous for games. I just, you know, I went out and played. Um, but that's the one game that, you know, I was sitting in my locker before the before warm-up started and my palms are sweating and I was nervous, you know, and I never got nervous. So it was kind of weird for me. Um, but once you got on the ice, you just played. Um, you know, my first NHL game was against uh, Montreal Canadiens, which is the team I hated growing up because I'm from Boston. Um, you know, I got to, and I was playing against, you know, Alex Kovalev who was one of the top players in the NHL at that time. But, you know, that was probably the one time I was like, wow, I finally made it. You know, I was in the minors for about five years. Um, you know, I wasn't ready. You know, it took me five years to get make my game an all-around player and, um, but that was my first NHL game was, was probably the one time I was like, you know, I finally made it and, you know, hopefully I can stay here. You played for Carolina, the Islanders, you played for the blues and you played for Washington. Also, you mentioned growing up in Boston. Did you ever, did it ever present itself for you to ever get to the Bruins? Was that ever a goal of yours in your career? Yeah. I mean, that was my goal. I always wanted to play for the Bruins and, and lucky enough, I, you know, I never played for the Boston Bruins, but um, I, I got two years. I played with the Providence Bruins, mm-hmm. so I was able to do that. Um, it's not the same, but uh, my first year uh, with the Providence Bruins was the, the first lockout year. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was playing. I played on a line with Patrice Bergeron and uh, Andy Hilbert. Uh, Brad Boyd was there. And, and that, at that time, the league was, you know, a lot of NHL players came down to the minor league and played that full year in the AHL. So um, you kind of got to compare yourself to guys like that. Um, but, you know, playing for the Providence Bruins was, you know, it was only my second year, I think it was. And, you know, that was the coolest thing going at that time. You know, I had a P Bruins shirt on and, you know, I was 45 minutes from home. My parents were at every game. So um, it was definitely cool just to play, play for the Providence Bruins. So I can't even imagine what it would have been like to play for the Boston Bruins. You mentioned Bergeron is not a captain of the Bees since Chara has gone on to play for the Capitals. Uh, what was a, a young Patrice Bergeron like? Because now really, you know, he's he's – um, mild-mannered, but he's one of the more iconic Boston athletes in the last 20 years. Yeah, he was, he was pretty much the same thing. He was very <laughs> quiet. He was very quiet. He, uh, he led by example, and he, and he was young. He was only, I think, maybe 19 or 20 at that time when I was playing with him, and you could just feel it. He, he just had it. You know, he had that leadership style. It was quiet. He led by example, and, you know, I still talk to him now. We became pretty good friends back then. Um, we actually dyed our hair blonde that year. That's probably why I don't have hair left anymore. So, um, but you know, we, we've stayed in contact, you know, the last 20 years. And, you know, when I retired from Germany, I came home and, you know, I gave him a call. He got me five tickets to the Bruins game and went down oh, after cool. the game and he met my kids. So, um, he's one of those guys that's just a quiet leader. He does a job. He doesn't expect recognition or anything like that. He just goes out there and plays and, you know, having him the captain of the Bruins, it's a well-deserved. And that's, he's just one of those guys you're really root for. NHL alum, former Norwich hockey player, leading scorer in cadet history, Keith Coyne with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You know, I don't know if this is a question or an observation that leads into a question, but I think that athletes don't get enough credit for just how mentally strong and nimble you guys are. And what I mean is 
I got I got let go from my job earlier in the summer because of the virus. And like that, that rocked my world for a while. And that was one time. But if you look at your hockey reference page, it's constantly shuffling between organizations and leagues and continents and AHL and NHL. Just how do you handle that kind of turmoil in your career? Because once once was enough for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it gets frustrating, you know, and, and the thing is, the, the biggest thing with me is I tried for it not to affect my game. Um, you know, I always felt once I got to the NHL, I could do it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wish I could have played more in the NHL. Um, so it was always frustrating, like when I would get called up, that I was doing the job that I was supposed to do. But it was always a number thing. Um, it is what it is. But for me, uh, my mindset was if I when I got sent down that, you know, I had to have the right mindset because if I go down and don't play well, I'm not going to get called back up. So that yeah. was always my mindset to go back down, work hard, do what I did to get there. And it's the only way to get back. Um, but I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't frustrating at times. You know, I think every athlete, you know, goes through some type of frustration with that. And for me, you know, for me, I felt like I was doing it a lot of the times that I could do it and stay there. And um, but but to your question, you know, my mindset always was go back down, work hard, do what I do, be a good, be a good teammate, um, work hard, have fun. I mean, we're playing hockey for a living, so yeah. I always figured have fun. But key question, you know, my mindset always was don't don't mope around, go back down, do your job, play the way you're supposed to play. That's the only way you're going to get back. Norwich is Division Three. I played Division Three sports. I know how hard it is to take that Division Three level and turn it into a pro level. And for me, it wasn't even close to happening. When did you know? playing in Norwich, you may have a chance to go on and play even professionally, not just the NHL. Was it a goal of yours going in or did it just kind of happen as you got going at Norwich? It was always a goal of mine to play um, after after my career at Norwich. Um, but you don't know what's going to happen. You know, like, you know, as a division three, you might not get, you probably get, might get overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, division one guys and guys that draft picks are going to get looks before you. Um, but to be honest, the, the one time, you know, lucky enough, Coach Coach McShane was there and, and he had a lot of connections and he got me my first tryout in the AHL. So, you know, I owe a lot of my career to him, not only, mm. you know, coaching me at Norwich, but, you know, getting me moved on after. Um, but my first my first tryout was with the Low Lock Monsters. And, um, you know, I was playing against guys in training camp who were, at, who were draft picks, first round draft picks, mm. second round draft picks. And my first inter-squad game, my first preseason game, you know, I could play with them. And that's the mm-hmm. one time that I realized, you know, I can do this, um, you know, if I worked hard enough and, and stayed with it. And I knew it would be a long road because, you know, I kind of set behind. Back then, you know, draft picks are always going to get to pick the, your, the chance before you. Um, but that first training camp, you know, right then and there, I knew I could do it as long as I got the chance. And um, I knew that I had a lot of work to do. I had to get bigger. I had to get stronger playing against bigger and, you know, faster defensemen forward. So, it took me five years to, to, to all around my game to make to play all three zones. You know, if you want to play pro hockey, you're playing the offensive zone, which I never had a problem with. That was what <laughs> I did. Um, but it was a defensive end, and um, I was getting better at that if I wanted to get to the NHL level. And, you know, it took me four or five years to working with coaches to get better at that. So, um, but that first training camp, I knew if I got the chance, I could do it. When you look back at your time with Norwich, again, all-time leading scorer in cadet history, and that's a storied history. When you look back at your time in Norwich, what stands out to you? Just all the friends I made. And, yeah. um, you know, the fans there are unbelievable. You know, you walk down the street, somebody knew who you were, you know, <laughs> and I was never used to that. And, um, you know, to this day, we, I mean, I'm in a chat with about, you know, 30, 30 or so guys on my mm. team over the four years I was there. We, we, we all stay in contact and, 
Um, but the friendships I made there and, you know, I got to, I got to grow up as a person on and off the ice there. You know, that's the first time living away from home. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of work to do in my game and, you know, Coach McShane helped me a lot, but just the friends I made there, I know my, my closest friends are still from college. Um, you know, in pro hockey, it's, it's tough to stay on a team for more than a couple of years, you know, at yeah. college, you're with some guys for four years. So just the friendships I made there and, um, the community was so supportive of, of our team. And that was a big reason why we were able to win a national championship. Norwich Hockey alum Keith Coin with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. You know, I'm going to ask you this question because I've had several people in the same position as you give me very different answers. So you got a Stanley Cup ring while playing with the Hurricanes, but you did not actually play in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So you have the ring. How do you view that ring considering you weren't on the ice for it? Yeah, it's I've been asked that question a lot of times. and uh, I'm sorry to be repetitive. No, <laughs> you know, that's something that you can get never going to be taken away from you. Obviously, I would love to have played, and I think getting your name on the Stanley Cup is the, the main goal. Um, you know, I think you have to play a game in the finals or a game in the playoffs, whatever it is. And um, just to be part of that, that whole playoff run, I was there the whole time, and you got to learn from – from them, just the way they played every game, every play you made meant something. You turn the puck over to blue line, it's going to end up in the back of your net. And, you know, they had a lot of leaders there, like Rod Brindamore was there. Eric Stahl was kind of just getting going. Eric Cole. Uh, Glenn Wesley was there, who was an old Bruin that I used to watch growing up in the 90s. Um, yeah. So I got to learn a lot from that, but that's something I'll never forget. I got to learn from those guys. And, you know, I have a Stanley Cup ring that I, you know, got to show to my kids, which was pretty cool. But, <laughs> Um, it does mean, you know, I was able to play with a couple of teams with Hershey and we won two championships. We won three in, um, in Germany. It, and it does feel like you're more involved when you're playing, you know, yeah. definitely, definitely do. But, um, we would love to get my name in the Stanley cup, but I do have a Stanley cup ring and I feel like, you know, those guys made us feel part of the team. So I, to this day, I st still feel part of that team. So your name's not on the Stanley cup. Did you at least get to take a drink out of it? Alex Ovechkin style? Oh yeah. yeah. Multiple <laughs> times. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I was lucky enough, you know, it was game seven. So I, I was, you know, we got two tickets per, per, per player. And um, I was able to have my dad come down for game seven. And, um, you know, we were all on the ice after. Um, so we drank a lot of the cup, water, <laughs> on, water. On of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, um, yeah, that was, you know, we have some really cool pictures from, from that time. You know, we had a, we had a uh, parade the next day. So, you know, we lived it down and, you know, that's, that's a year that I'll never forget. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. You mentioned Eric Cole playing for the Hurricanes. I went to college at Oswego State. Eric Cole is from Oswego. I spent many nights in the Oswego sub shop where Eric Cole has subs named after him, so that's a cool connection. And two, I am from Albany. I grew up there. I got to ask you, what were your Albany River Rats experiences like? Yeah, I was there for, you know, I think maybe two and a half years. Uh, I loved it there. I thought it was a great city. Um, yeah. It opened until three, which is yeah, always, hey, that's always fun. a good thing. But, um, <laughs> you know, when I was in Albany, I was kind of an, an older guy, so I, I, were, I was actually a captain there. So I kind of like molded into a, a, a little bit of a leader there over the two years, kind of grew up a little bit. And um, But I love the city. Um, the, the fans were good. We didn't have that many fans. I wish, I wish we had more fans at that time there. Yeah. Um, but the fans that we had were very supportive. But like I said, I, that's when I kind of grew up a little bit. I became a captain and kind of a leader there. So um, loved my time there. Um, like I said, it was a great time there. 
Keith the coin, all-time leading scorer in Norwich hockey history. Uh, four teams in his NHL career. He's got a Stanley Cup ring. He took some time with us today on the Brady Farkas Show as part of our Radio Row at Home coverage. So, uh, Keith, man, we appreciate it. Best of luck. Keep repping the maroon and gold, and we'll talk to you again down the Thank line. You. So who are you rooting for the Super Bowl? You're talking about the Super Bowl. Who yeah, I, uh, you know what? I'm rooting for the Chiefs, but to me it's uh, – a lesser of two evils. I don't want to see Brady win without the Patriots. And I also don't want the endless amount of love that's going to come if Mahomes wins his second in a row. So it's a lesser of two evils. I'll say I'm rooting for the Chiefs, but I won't be crushed if Brady wins. I just don't want to see him win without the Pats. Yeah, I'm con- I'm conflicted, but he's yeah. my guy, so I got to stay with him. I, I don't hate Brady, but he took a couple unnecessary shots at New England this year, and I really don't like his friendship with Antonio Brown, but that's me on yeah. a personal level. But uh, I, Brady overall is fine with me. I just, I'm a little, he, he was dissing the weather up here in New England. His yeah, coach is taking that. shots at Belichick. Not a fan of that. I saw that. I, I agree with you that. There's no need for that. <laughs> so, hey, Keith, man, we appreciate it. Enjoy the game coming up in a couple of days. Enjoy the NHL as well, and we'll talk to you again. Thanks, Brady. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Keith the coin, my first time talking with him appreciate uh, him Norwich alum from Norwich to the NHL to the Stanley Cup so just a uh, a great guy first time talking to him a great story if you want to get in on that interview you can 802-585-3026 pat up and Essex says great interview Joe in Burlington was pumped to hear him as well so uh Really, really cool interview. We are going to be back with uh, another Radio Row at Home interview in a little while here in about 10 minutes. Russ Landy is going to stop by. He's the director of U.S. Scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, knows everything about the draft, knows everything about the scouting world when it comes to football. Um, I really loved Keith talking about you know, admitting to being nervous on his opener. And, and I think that, you know, it sounds obvious, but we always hear all the time players say, oh, I don't get nervous. Oh, I don't get nervous. Oh, it's just another game. Well, Keith says it wasn't just another game. And he did think about it. And it was a time where he felt sick to his stomach. And I thought that was great, raw honesty. I thought it was an awesome story. I loved hearing it. I think it's an unbelievable ability to be able to go from uh, Division three to the professional level. It does not happen very often. Maybe it, you know, it happens in hockey a little bit more because there really isn't a Division two, so there's just less players in the college game to choose from. But, I mean, I can think of in, in my college baseball experience at Division three, had maybe three or four guys get drafted that I that I was even aware of in four years. I played all four years. A couple, you know, a couple of kids from Cortland State, a couple of kids from Keystone, and you know, you know, a few other scattered guys. And that's about it. It's not easy, you know to show up in Northfield and then to turn around four years later a national championship and a whole lot of numbers and turn that into the NHL. I thought it was great. You know, uh, I thought it also you know was great when he said that in Norwich he felt like a big deal. And it wasn't said arrogantly, but just like the idea that Northfield and that this state and that this community is able to support that program like they are, that they care that deeply, that they would know who the local Division Three hockey player is out on the street. I, I thought that, that was, you know, speaks really, really well of the cadet community and of the cadet following. I think that's awesome stuff. And, you know, look, as someone who worked at Norwich for a year, you know, you see it firsthand inside Kreitzberg Arena. They love that program. 
People in Northfield love that program. Heck, people from all of Central Vermont love that program. We're pumped to be the voice of Norwich Hockey with George Como and have it on this station because it has a huge following. And Keith says, now we're going back 20 years. And he says that he goes around town and people knew who he was and they knew he was part of the team and that's how deeply they cared. You don't know, you don't get that at Division Three. You do it the highest level of hockey, Plattsburgh, Norwich, Oswego, uh, you know, uh, the schools out, you know, uh, the schools out there out west. Um, someone can text in here. I know I'm gonna screw it. The one in Wisconsin, the one that's oh, St. Norbert. That's it. The one that's always in there going against Norwich and others. So um, we do have some breaking news on the actual news front. So I want to get to this. Um, everybody, be safe out there. I'm reading it word for word. An emergency response is underway at the University Mall in South Burlington. Numerous police and rescue vehicles have converged on the scene. The U-Mall is blocked off right now as South Burlington police investigate what they are calling an active incident. They're asking people to avoid that area. Um, Witnesses are describing dozens of police officers with weapons drawn around the mall area. Multiple people say... They've seen police blocking entrances and exits to the mall. Police have not confirmed at this point what exactly has happened or whether or not anyone has been hurt. So if you are going towards um, the U-Mall, avoid the U-Mall. So that is coming from WCAX and is being asked by South Burlington Police. So if you are driving in that area, be safe. I also don't know if it's snowing yet because I'm not able to look outside any windows right now. So... Be careful on that front as well. So uh, back to the sports show, Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV. Thanks again to Keith the Coin for joining us. The all-time leading scorer in Norwich history. I also love, I love hearing that guys who made it big, and Keith did, right? You win a Stanley Cup. You're in the NHL for, you know, several years. You play with four teams, and he's still this close to his college buddies. I love stories like that. He says, hey, I'm on a text chain with 30 guys that I used to play with across all four years. You just College sports is a powerful thing. I don't have that with guys that I played college sports with. Not because we weren't friends, but you know we just weren't as close as what Keith is saying he experienced. And uh, I've always kind of regretted that. You know, I got high school buddies. We play fantasy sports together. We still talk. But to be on a text chain with 30 other guys, that's a special commitment. Norwich had something special going on to him. So very, very cool. All right, when we come back. I need help. I want to fix the Patriots. One one thing is off the table now. I can't get Matthew Stafford. So I can't get Stafford. So how can I fix the Patriots? Well, Russ Landy, who's the director of U.S. scouting for the CFL's Montreal Alouettes. He used to work in the NFL. He knows the draft. He knows the college football world. He knows scouting inside and out. Russ Landy, he's going to stop by. How can we fix the Patriots? We'll do it together. That's next on the Brady Farkas Show, Radio Row at Home, right here on the Friendly Pioneer, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. It is our 
Radio Row at Home Week. So we're not down in Tampa, but we are getting ready for the Super Bowl, bringing you the biggest names and best guests. And on with us now is Russ Landy, who is the Director of U.S. Scouting for the Montreal Alouettes of the CFL. Just took that position. Russ, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I appreciate you being with us. So as someone who's involved in U.S. scouting, it certainly means you're well-versed in college football and the NFL draft. Let me ask you this, because we've been talking about the Matthew Stafford trade to the Rams, and the Rams gave up multiple first-round picks for Stafford. How valuable are draft picks? Because I treat them like gold, and I'm wondering if I should. Well, they're very valuable in terms of roster building. You have to build your roster, not just in the first round, but with the later round picks and the undrafted free agents. I think the Rams are looking at it short term. They don't have a lot of years left with some of the talent they have. But if you don't focus on drafting correctly, you're going to have a long, a hard time sustaining long-term success. And the Rams have done a great job in recent years with mid, late, and undrafted guys of sort of making up for the fact they haven't had a first-round pick yeah. since 16. You know, how valuable is – or what What do you think is the best way to build a roster? And what I mean by that is from the quarterback position. So I'm looking at the Patriots. We're a Patriots affiliate. And I say the answer is draft a young quarterback, trade up if you need to, and get the quarterback on that cheap contract for five years and build out that way. Other people say, no, we want to just go sign a veteran or make a trade of our own, and we want to go get an already established guy. Is there a one-size-fits-all to roster building? No, I, I mean, there is in one respect. To me, it still is, regardless of passing and the fact that you're going to throw it 40 times a game, your O-line, D-line needs to be the strength of your team. Hmm. Because as I learned early in my career, if the quarterback's the most important guy in the field, then the guys who can knock him out of the game and protect him are the two next groups that you have to really make sure you get on your roster. And I also think if you're an organization that only says we're going to get our quarterback in this one way, you're probably going to fail. Because in the NFL, things change all the time. You have to be open to doing different things. I mean, I like what Detroit did, and I like both sides of this trade, but Detroit is basically saying we're going to take a young kid who clearly has fallen out of favor in St. Louis or Los Angeles and try to fix Goff, but yep. I'll bet you they also draft a quarterback. And they're going to say, hey, let's see if one of them becomes the guy because your best chance of finding one is having two or three options. When you're a scout for a team, what kind of conversations are you having with the head coach of the front office to pitch your guys? Because we're all wondering how the Patriots are going to attack this draft. And we know Bill Belichick has a lot of control of that draft. But if you are a staff member for him, what are you saying to him throughout the process? Well, the biggest thing and the great part about Bill being there so long is as a scout, you know exactly what he wants in players. So you can go to him and say, hey, Bill, he fits the mental makeup we want. He fits the type of locker room you like to have in your building, and he fits the offense or the defensive scheme we're working with. So he's got a lot of the traits. The hardest part for any scout and for any person in life is to figure out what is above a person's shoulders, and especially for a quarterback, how mentally quick are they? How tough are they? How good are they at forgetting their mistakes and going on and playing well? So all of those things for a scout, you have to find out that information, dig deep, and then present that to your boss so he understands what he's getting in the player. Scouting is such an imperfect science. It doesn't matter what sport it is, baseball, basketball, football. Why? What, what are scouts looking for? Are you looking for traits? Are you looking for physicality? Are you looking for proven track record and production at the college game? What are you looking for? Well, I think it's sort of a, an amalgam of everything, and that's part of what makes this so difficult. There are so many players that have had great success in college statistically that never really panned out. 
There are others that had unbelievable success and were tremendously productive in the NFL. So there's so many varieties of things. You have to look at the skill set because there is a minimum skill needed in the NFL because even the big linemen who weigh 330 pounds are rare athletes for people right. their size. So you have to find the athleticism. You have to have minimums, minimums in size. You're not going to have a five foot nine center or a five foot four cornerback. There are minimums you have to meet. Once you find the minimum size wise and the athletic traits, then you really have to dive deep into the character, the intangibles, the work ethic, the toughness. Will they play hurt? How do they overcome when things go sideways? <clears throat> All of those things, which are very difficult to get a true feel for, combined to give you the perfect uh, sort of scouting report. But even the perfect scouting report is still going to be wrong 10 to 20 percent of the time because we're dealing with human beings and we're dealing with them having to play against the best in the world on a bright stage. It's impossible to be 100 percent. We just had the Senior Bowl this past weekend, and that's really going to be the only chance for for coaches to get in front of people this year. There's not going to be the traditional NFL combine. There will be some pro day stuff, but how big a deal is this altered schedule pre-draft for teams in the NFL? You know, I really think that this is another year, just like last year, where those teams that are well-run and really organized and have a set plan have a gigantic advantage over the other half of the league that is not particularly well-run. Um, when you look at teams like Pittsburgh, who have been doing it a certain way for many years and know what they're doing, this is not going to make it too difficult for them. I think what you're going to see is those teams that are well-run and also really have a strong focus on they understand how to watch film, build their draft board, and combine the numerical analytics from production on the field and a little bit of protein information, the way they integrate those, the teams that do that well will succeed in the draft. The teams that are scattershot, don't have strong film evaluators, and don't really have a set plan and are really not organized, they're going to really have trouble this spring. Russ Landy, he's the Russ Landy. He's the uh, director of U.S. scouting for the Montreal Alouettes of the CFL, and he's here with us on a radio row at home on the Brady Farkas Show <laughs> on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVRadio.com. You know, it's so interesting because when a guy comes from a program that you know we don't think of as particularly strong, we always you know give give that guy the benefit of the doubt. Daniel Jones or Josh Allen, we just assume, hey, they'll be better when they get playing with better competition. On the other hand. A guy like Mac Jones, who the Patriots are always involved with now in every rumor, is we're going to devalue him because he came from a program that was so good. Is that fair or foul? Well, I think it's very fair in the media sense because unless you're there going to the school, you don't understand what's going on. They're the best scouts in the world, they evaluate the skills of that specific player. And you try to eliminate the fact that they're playing at Alabama or Northwest Missouri. Evaluate the skills of the player. Don't let the fact that the receiver may be a little bit slower or faster at a certain school get into your head and, and make you think that, that that affects how accurate a quarterback throws the ball. The quarterback throwing the ball is not physically tied to the receiver's ability to get open. Yeah. The quarterback's throwing the ball is physically decided by his ability to throw the ball accurately. So it really comes down to separating the skills. Now, obviously, players at the elite schools often have a lot more talent around them, so they can be a little bit more dominant because things go their way in terms of the offensive line is better, the holes are better, there's better protection for the quarterback. But if you look at the skill set, that's the most important thing that the really good scouts do, identify the skill set, then you can accurately project as best you can in the scouting business, how well they'll do as a professional. You know, you mentioned the the biggest position being quarterback and after that it being the lines. 
I've been conditioned to think that way my whole life also. I'm starting to change my tune of thought, though, into thinking that it's no longer the defensive line that's as important. I'm starting to think it's the defensive backfield with how fast the game has gotten and how much passing goes on. I'm starting to think that the, that, that the DB position is more important than the D-line position. Am I? We obviously disagree, but am I? Tr- is it trending towards the way I'm thinking at all? Well, I don't know if it's ever been dramatically different. Most teams have always had quarterback, D-line, O-line, DBs. Okay. Because DBs are unbelievably valuable. I think the biggest reason that the D-line gets a little bit of a notch above it is if you are able to create pressure and make the quarterback uncomfortable, you can get away with actually a below average secondary if you have a dominant front four. But if you have a dominant secondary, but you have nobody up front that can get to the quarterback – even the best DBs can't cover NFL receivers forever. Yeah. And that's the issue you run into. But don't get me wrong. Those corners are rare and hard to find. And when you find a special one, they're worth their weight in gold. So the difference between DBs and D-line, it's minimal. But D-line takes a slight nod from me. You know, I, this is an open-ended question. I hope it's not a stupid one. I, I want to know if there's any great scouting stories that you have. Because I think about baseball and I think I can pull stories of – this guy was on this little-known player forever, and he watched him 10 times in the Dominican Republic, and no one had ever heard of him, and he found him, and he ended up going to the Hall of Fame. There's those sports in baseball where there's more diamonds in the rough. Do you have stories like that in football, or is everybody watching the same pool of players, and it's just about draft position, et cetera? I will say the bulk of it is, in fact, about just draft position, how thorough you are as an organization. But there are stories like that. Guys get found. And I'll give you a perfect example. My first year with the Browns, we get a list of where the players are in the preseason. So we put our schedule together. Well, yeah. I had five days blank with no schools mm. because I had filled out all the days with prospects. So I identified five schools that had good basketball teams. And I figured, let me go to those schools. Well, it turns out on 9-11 of all days, wow. I went to Drake University. They did not have a basketball player. But when I called ahead, they said, we actually have a kicker who got rejected by the people who came in in the spring for the NFL to look at him. So I said, well, I'm going to be there. Let me Mm. watch him. So I watched the kid practice. I watched every game he kicked his entire career, and I added him to the list. He had not been on the list, and he ended up playing over a decade in the NFL. So there are guys that you can find that aren't on the list, but in general, almost all the players are on that preseason list, and it's a a matter of, correctly evaluating the talent, and also getting the intangibles part correct. Because that's 90% of a player's success and failure in the NFL is how do they handle being a pro and all the things that go into that off the field. When you're a, when you're a scout and then eventually talking to a coach, are you looking for in the draft need or best player available? You know, it's a great question. I think what teams try to do is they build sort of a tiered system. Um, some teams will call it a horizontal draft board. Some people call it a staircase. And what you will do is you will group players together that are close in grade, like an 8-5 to an 8-9. Because mm. how do you separate truly when a scout is saying, oh, I think he's an 8-7 or I think he's an 8-5? You're really – it's so fine. You try to group them all together in that little group. And on each step, then you rank them on those steps based on how they would bet best fit within your building, whether it's need, whether it's – their size, whether it's their mental makeup, all of those traits. And you never want to draft a step below when there's a player still left there. So generally, you want to take the best player on the step that you've ranked based on needs. And if you drop down a step to draft a player while there's someone there, 
that's a big red flag and it usually doesn't work out. Russ Landy, director of U.S. scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, uh, helping me rebuild the Patriots in my own mind. As he says all these things, I'm thinking about how the Patriots can get back in 2021. We're looking forward to the Alouettes being back on the field again soon. Had to miss the CFL season this past year. And uh, a lot of people in this area, um, including my coworker Rick, just down the hall, who's just a diehard CFL fan. So a lot of people missing the CFL. So we look forward to uh, to seeing you guys back on the field. And Russ, here's to uh, hoping you hit some home runs this year for the Owls. Thank you very much. We're uh, obviously excited and uh, looking forward to getting back on the field this year. And, and I will say for those Patriots fans, you're not that far away. Bill is obviously one of the great coaches of all time. He'll have them back on track sooner than people think. All right, let's hope so. I'm going to hold you to that, Russ. So Russ Landy with us here on the Brady Farkas Show. Radio Row at home. If you miss any of the interviews, you can always subscribe, remember, to the full show podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEBradio.com. We're going to use a lot of this sound that we accumulate this week going forward in this show, and we'll just start using it, you know, just building this database of audio uh, from people on this show. So we're looking forward to uh, the rest of the week. We'll step aside real quick. We'll come back with one last word on Dustin Pedroia. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Closing thoughts. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Dustin Pedroia announced his retirement from Major League Baseball today. He spent more than 15 years in the Red Sox organization. His pro career was 2006 to 2019 as far as with the Red Sox, uh, you know, on the 40-man roster and all that. But uh, Dustin Pedroia deserves to have his number eventually retired in Boston, as reports indicate he will. He was imperfect overall, but he was perfect for the Boston Red Sox. His productivity was great. His legacy was great. A three-time champion, a four-time All-Star, an MVP, four gold gloves. But his identification with Boston is very tangible, and it's very real. Okay, he's got that underdog quality that Boston loves. He's got that grit that Boston loves, that New England loves. He's got that heart that Boston loves, and it's everything that Boston fans should embrace. Yes, he could be a little moody. He didn't handle the Manny Machado thing right with his teammates, but that kind of surly nature, that snarl, that that tough guy syndrome, that menacing look, that is what epitomizes Boston. It's why we love Marcus Smart. It's why we love Julian Edelman and these other athletes who are undersized, overlooked, don't have the greatest physical skill set, but they just work hard, they just grind, and that's appreciated by Boston fans in a major way. And in a way, Pedroia was the anti-Derek Jeter, and I think that makes people in Boston love him more. He, he was the opposite of Jeter in some ways. They had very similar games when you really broke it down, but, but appearance-wise, Pedroia was the exact opposite of Jeter. Jeter was great as a player, but he was proper. It just felt easier for him. He was with the Yankees. Things just seemed to come more natural. For Pedroia, Everything felt like it was more of a struggle. It was about overcoming obstacles, and I think that's endearing to Red Sox Nation. Yeah, the last few years, the money drain he had on the books, so be it. Don't let that cloud your judgment. I don't think Dustin Pedroia is a baseball Hall of Famer, but I think he's a Red Sox Hall of Famer, and I think he deserves to have his number retired. So good for Pedroia for coming to this conclusion. Good for his family who now gets their dad and husband at home. But 
Red Sox fans, you've forgotten how good and how impactful Pedroia has been to the organization. Don't let those last few years cloud that. He's a Red Sox Hall of Famer. He deserves to be remembered as such, and uh, I wish him well. So, Dustin Pedroia retiring at the age of 37, more than 15 years in the Red Sox organization. A heck of a 15 years it was. So, Pedroia, a three-time World Series champion. A great first day on Radio Row at home. If you want to get in any thoughts after the fact, leave them for tomorrow. You can at 585-3026. Thanks to Keith the Coin for stopping by. Galen Carr and Russ Landy. Tomorrow, it's going to be big as well. You never know who exactly is going to show up, but the plans are there for Tom Brennan, former UVM hockey star. Uh, Tori Mitchell is stopping by the show, as is former Patriots quarterback Doug Flutie, CFL Hall of Famer. Download the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com. That will do it for me. Drive safe in the snow, everybody. We'll be back at it tomorrow with the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com, and always streaming on that free WDEV radio app.